0: Hello, and welcome to Mental Health Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Lang, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Burton. In this podcast, we will talk about all things mental health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, welcome back. Liz Lang here with Dr. Mark Burton. And this week we are wrapping up Suicide Awareness Month. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity to really break down depression, to talk about some of the things that cause it and how it's diagnosed, and talk about it as it correlates to suicidality, because I think it's probably the leading factor in developing suicidality is depression. Oh, yeah. That's and we true. can yeah, and we can talk kind of about the difference between depression and chronic depression would be a good topic. So let's start off with what causes depression.
1: So that is a really good question. And if you were talking to a medical doctor as opposed to a psychologist, you'd probably get a fairly different answer. Mm -hmm. And so I think most medical doctors are going to say that there is something different in your brain and probably around the neurotransmitter, serotonin, you know, that type of thing. But I think from my perspective, so since I'm not a medical doctor, I'm going to Mm -hmm. give you what I think causes depression. The common theme that I see in people who are depressed is this sense that either part or all of their life is out of their control. And they think that there are various situations that can occur where that would happen. And so we're going to talk in a bit about the connection between grief and depression and how mm-hmm. they're, they're similar. But if you think about the death of a loved one, totally out of our control, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the reaction is going to be similar. If you have, say, a divorce and you didn't mm-hmm. want a divorce, but your spouse did, then again, something totally out of your control. Mm-hmm. horrible thing death of a child which is certainly you're going to have grief but also that depression loss of a job you get fired Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe you don't like where you're living but you feel stuck and so you feel like you don't have any options sometimes in family relationships we feel stuck like there's nothing we can do i have to be with my family of origin but i don't like it and so that lack of control can often cause the depression. So I want to be clear. I think there are times when there are brain issues, but I don't think that that's most of the time. And if you go back in the history of antidepressants, when antidepressants were first developed, it was really very specific for severe depression, which I think what we're talking about is those times when there is is some sort of uh, disruption in those neurotransmitters in the brain. Mm -hmm. But then over time, and again, this is my own bias, I think for the drug companies to make more money, they've expanded the definition of what depression is. And so if you're sad, then, you know, you can be diagnosed with depression when Mm -hmm. there are just these life events that happen. And so I want to be clear. I think there are times when it is a brain issue and that medication is likely the best option.
0: Absolutely, I agree with that. I think the story that we read
1: mm-hmm. um, a yeah. few weeks
0: ago is absolutely a case where medications are necessary. and I know that it's something that he's dealt with for his entire life. And so it really is chronic. And I think the difference is is if you are doing all the things that we've talked about in the past, so we talk about the big three in mm-hmm. anxiety and depression, sleep, aerobic exercise, Exercise. and meditation. If you're regularly doing all of those three and you're consistent and you just can't get out of the funk and it's lasting beyond an event that somehow... That's triggered a depressive episode because like you said, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, something unexpected and horrible that's happened in our lives is going to cause depression and that is totally normal. But if you've moved on, your life is improving and you're doing all of the things that you're supposed to be doing and you still feel like you are just deeply depressed and you're unhappy and you can't shake it, then yeah, I think medication could be appropriate.
1: Right. And so in those cases, there's not really a lot to talk about because you get, you need to be under the care of either a good psychiatrist, or I prefer APRNs, at at least in Utah, that's what we call them, advanced practice registered nurses. And the state has given them license to go ahead and prescribe what we call the psychotropic medications. And so I prefer them over psychiatrists, although um, there's certainly good psychiatrists out there. So, Uh you know, if you have that type of depression, then you want to be on medication, you want to be under the care of a good APRN, or a psychiatrist. And then the research is pretty clear that you always want to pair the medication with some sort of good talk therapy.
0: Yes. I think they call it cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. And
1: that's just a type of talk therapy. But if you really think about it, and we don't need to go into a lot of detail about cognitive behavioral therapy, but in my mind, it's about changing the way we think and changing our behaviors, Mm -hmm. which from my perspective is how do you get control over your life again? Mm -hmm. Because I think ultimately that's the solution. So the reason I talk about those other issues of death of a loved one, loss of a job, those types of things, Mm -hmm. because I think that's, If you look at the majority of the people, at least in our country, who are prescribed antidepressants, I think they probably fall under that category. Mm -hmm. And there's a great book that I'll mention again, which I know I've mentioned it before, Mm -hmm. called Lost Connections. And it's by Johan Hari. The last name is H-A-R-I. And I think he does a really great job of talking about what has changed in our culture, in the world that leads to the increasing anxiety and depression. And I think it's a good read for anyone who's struggling with those issues. So how do you diagnose Mm -hmm. depression? So it's just, this goes into the DSM. The DSM is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, manual, which is uh, put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And it's kind of the diagnostic Bible that we use. Although nowadays, This is a bit of information if anyone's interested. We use to diagnose what's called the ICD-10, which is the international something on diagnosis. I don't know what the ICD stands for. but And that was only because Medicare and Medicaid, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Mm -hmm. which really drives a lot of the insurance payment in our country. They're the ones who Mm -hmm. said you have to start using ICD-10 but it doesn't mean that the DSM goes away and most people are somewhat familiar with the DSM. Mm-hmm. So we're using what's called the DSM-5. It's the fifth edition. And within the DSM, they'll have a list of criteria. And so it's really based on an interview, a clinical interview. And okay. so here are some of the things that have to be necessary. It's a depressive episode, but it has to last longer than two weeks. So okay. you know, if you feel like you're depressed for a week, you don't fit the diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm. loss of interest or loss of pleasure in all activities change in appetite or weight either way you know losing weight or gaining weight Mm -hmm. sleep disturbances when in the past you've slept pretty well so some sort of sleep disruption i think i've mentioned this before that if you look at bipolar which is a big diagnosis right now or depression in bipolar there is always i'm gonna i'll go out on a limb and i'll say an Mm -hmm. absolute there is always some sort of sleep disruption. And one of the most important things you can do is try and figure out how do you re-regulate that sleep? Because right. sleep is so, so critical.
0: And with bipolar too, the other thing to note is that is a real cognitive imbalance in the brain that I believe it's very different from anxiety and depression.
1: Recycling like between what you might call manic episodes mm-hmm. and depression. But there's, for a lot of people, I think bipolar is way overdiagnosed as well. And and I've been to quite a few conferences and talked to some pretty well-known psychiatrists. And I think often bipolar is misdiagnosed when really there's a personality disorder going on. Mm -hmm. But that's the topic for a whole other uh, podcast. So back to the symptoms, fatigue. This is one of the most common ones. I can't get out of bed or I don't want to get out of bed. Coupled with the loss of interest, I just don't want to get up and go to work. Feelings of low self-worth, guilt or shortcomings, difficulty in concentrating uh, or making decisions. That ability to focus and attend is one of the first things that goes Mm. in depression. And then the last one, suicidal thought or ideation. So those are the things that a good clinician, a psychiatrist or psychologist or social worker is going to assess for those. But I think that what's really important is to know the context of the life of the person that you're talking to. And so one of the things we could transition into is how does grief then fit into this whole picture?
0: Right. Because people are going to experience sad and hard things. Something you said earlier triggered a thought when you said, I have to be with my family of origin, but I don't like it. That made me instantly think of teenagers who Uh don't like their family of origin, which is very, very common. I would say a lot of times it's probably because teenagers are seeking autonomy and oftentimes... They're pushing back against their parents, which is a normal cycle of life, but I think it's very easy for that to turn into depression, particularly if you are heading down a road that your parents don't agree with. I'm thinking in terms of religion. If you decide as a teenager, I no longer believe in this religion, I no longer want to be a part of it, it's not who I am, it's not what I believe, and your parents don't accept or respect that, that can be incredibly frustrating and isolating as a teenager.
1: Right. And it's that individuation that is a very normal process. And I think Mm -hmm. I say this to parents all the time. I I don't think this is the conscious thing on the part of teenagers. I think unconsciously they create conflict in order to aid in that separation and that individuation. But I think if you you can work through it with teenagers, then by the time they're, oh, I'll say 25, you know, somewhere in there, Mm -hmm. then they come back. And because they've gone through that process. But if we think about grief, yeah. so this nice. is a little bit of history, and I'll try not to get too detailed about this. So we're in DSM-5, so the fifth version. If you go back to the third version and the fourth version, they actually had a grief exclusion, okay. meaning that if you were diagnosing for depression, and then in the course of your interview, it came out that, yes, I just lost a loved one, mm-hmm. and so I'm grieving, and a lot of those symptoms are going to be the same then they had the grief exclusion. And so you couldn't get a, give them a diagnosis for a depression because of that grief exclusion. Okay. So you fast forward then, you know, to I can't remember when the DSM-5 came out. It's been five years, five or six years. But they actually took that out. And there was a fair amount of controversy, I think still is around that. Because, you know, on one side of the debate about this, you're taking a fairly normal emotional process of grief. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're making it a clinical issue. Oh, they've got depression. Right. So they developed what they called persistent complex bereavement disorder. Okay. But the problem is the reason they brought grief back in is they mentioned those other things that I mentioned before. Okay, what about a divorce? What about the loss of a job? why wouldn't we exclude those things why are we singling out grief or bereavement to you know single out and give them an exclusion so they brought it back in that was their thinking okay but i think it's important to maybe talk about the differences between major depressive disorder and grief and so in grief you might feel empty and lost a natural reaction to, I think, especially a spouse or, you know, someone that you're close with. But in major depressive disorder, you have that persistent depressed mood and the inability to anticipate happiness or pleasure. So I think one of the differences with, say, the normal grief process is that we can actually know that, you know, and sometime in the future, I will get over this and I will be able to move on. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the big differences is, you know, in a major depressive disorder, or even in that persistent or prolonged grief, you lose that ability to look to the future and see that, you know, I will be happy in the future. In grief, decrease in intensity over days and weeks occurs and it occurs in waves. If you've ever lost anyone close to you, I mean, I've experienced that as well. It comes in waves. You know, you could be two months down, you may have a trigger, you may have something that triggers a memory and then you feel that intense grief, but it's pretty transient, goes away, doesn't yeah. last a long time. And so uh, the difference in that major depressive disorder is that those feelings are persistent for most of the day. Every day, so uh, in grief, any type of self derogatory ideation typically involves perceived failings with regard to the deceased. For instance, oh, I should have done this, or I could have done this, or I wished, you know, I wished I would have had more time with my dad, or I wished we would have, you know, gone fishing more. That type of thing, and so you're kind of have some negative self talk that is really about maybe regrets with regard to the person who's deceased. Whereas in that major depressive disorder, self-critical and pessimistic and feelings of worthlessness are pretty continuous. You know, you're feeling those all the time and it's not necessarily linked to the loss of someone else. And then in grief, any thoughts about death or dying are typically focused on the deceased. and, And again, you know, depending say on your spiritual Uh, attitude it might be oh i wish i were with them or Mm -hmm. i would like to join them and so again pretty normal as far as a reaction a grief reaction but then you know in a major depressive disorder it turns into that suicide ideation and it's more that we've talked about in the last three weeks it's more about i don't see any way out of my emotional pain whereas someone who has the emotional pain around grief, there's a way out and you see an end to it at some point. So does that help you understand the differences between grief and major depression? Yeah,
0: it does. It's very helpful information. A couple of things have come to mind as I've been listening. So one of them is that some people are more prone to depression than others. And, And that is sometimes a genetic component and sometimes it's just someone's disposition to kind of look on the negative side of things. And the other thing that I'm thinking of is even if you are going through prolonged grief and it can, maybe it is depression, but either way or if you feel like you're struggling, I think it's still okay to seek help to do talk therapy Oh, yeah. You know, you don't need to be diagnosed with depression to try to do something to help yourself feel better. It's just, I think the differentiation we're trying to make here is maybe when is medication actually justified?
1: Right. See, for me, medication is justified if you're that person who can't get out of bed Mm -hmm. and who can't go to their job and function or who can't be a parent.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: But if you think about most people, they're actually able to get out of bed, they function as a parent, and they go work. But there are some in you know in that major depressive disorder where they can't do that. and that's when I think the medication mm-hmm. is really important. It helps jumpstart them. It's like a bridge mm-hmm. uh, back to a more stable, a life. Now, right. you, you mentioned certainly that some people are more prone, say, to depression or being upset. I think from my perspective, we would call that more of a personality trait. And the word we use uh, kind of upsets some people. We would call them neurotic. Okay. And the only reason we would call them that is they just feel things more deeply. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the best ways to Right. Talk about. What it what does being neurotic mean? It means if I feel sad, I'm really sad, and I you know it gets big pretty fast.
0: Well, but I think the flip side to that could be when you feel happy, you feel really happy. You just yeah. you yeah. feel all your emotions big. So I don't know, count me neurotic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I don't know if there's anything that wrong I, with I, neurotic. Uh, I, 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 I agree. I, see, I think one of the drawbacks of medication. Here's something, if you ever talk to people on medication, it certainly it stabilizes them. But people who are on it long-term, what they tend to say is it makes them flat. Mm-hmm. And life is about the highs and lows. And when you just said, well, yeah, if I'm happy, I feel really big happy. Uh-huh. And people like that. I mean, yeah. what's, the, what's not to like about that? Mm-hmm. But often if you're on those antidepressants, then you don't feel those. And that is the biggest complaint that I hear about antidepressant medication is they can't feel the highs. It feels good to them to not go down so deep into the valleys, Uh but they're also missing the highs. And for some people, after they've missed those highs for so long, they choose to go off the medication because they'll deal with the lows and they like feeling really happy at times.
0: Yeah. So I will go ahead and share my own experience with depression. And I will start by reminding people of an episode in which we talked about the differences that depression often presents in men and women. Mm-hmm. And as you were reading that, I thought, huh, that's interesting. Mine tends to present more like on the male side. So mm-hmm. this could be, I think, part of nurture versus nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as far as my family of origin, because I mean, my family on my dad's side, they have a long history of a temper Mm -hmm. (laughs) of of tempers and losing their temper very easily. But, you know, I kind of noticed the same thing in my youth is I would tend towards angry outbursts. So my story with anxiety and depression started with postpartum depression. And I've shared this before. And I'll quickly recap. After the birth of my first daughter, I had genuine diagnosed postpartum depression. And what was so terrifying to me was the thoughts of hurting my baby, which Mm -hmm. are horrible thoughts, but they don't make you a bad person. And I said that before, and I want to say it again, you are not a bad mother for having those thoughts. We've said this before it's just a thought. It doesn't make it less, any less distressing because the hard part is sometimes you feel the urge to hurt your baby, which is really, really scary. But that's when you know you need help. And that's when you should seek help. And I think at the time, it was definitely the right call to put me on medication. Uh And so they said six to nine months And so I stayed on it for six to nine months and I was working with a primary care physician at the time. And after the nine months was up, I started to wean myself off of it and I kind of regressed a lot. And so he said, well, why don't you just stay on it? And so I have. Uh And I've tried going off of it in the past because I've heard that uh, some antidepressants are not good for pregnant women because there can be complications. So when I would try to go off of it, what I find that happens is I get very agitated and very snappy easily, and I feel very, very angry, and it feels like this uncontrollable rage wells up inside of me, and I don't know what to do with it, and I feel like I have to get it out, or... I feel like I have to get it out somehow. And the only way that feels good to get it out is to do something physical, whether that's self-harm or hitting something or kicking something. And I know that that's not a healthy emotional outlet to do, but I've stayed on the medication because it's better than the alternative. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know, but I'm sure I'm not the only one and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I think that what comes to mind when you talk about it, and I think we talked about it in the episode where you mentioned your postpartum depression, after the birth of a child, the hormones in a woman's body are just
0: crazy.
1: And I think that, I hope that doing some work with hormones is the next medical frontier because Mm -hmm. it, it really affects our mood, the way we behave in a major way. And honestly, we just don't know that much about them. And so I think that what happens is, let's say what you just said is when you feel that rage or that anger mm-hmm. and you want to do something physical, see, I think what happens is there's a release of some sort of hormone that's going on that then mm. uh, works to calm you down. And so you've just figured out how to get that release of the hormone, which I think is what happens when people cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. so there's actually something physical that's going on in the body mm-hmm. when someone cuts and, and I agree with you that's not a good solution I think that I mean all I can really say is we don't know how hormones influences but I know they do mm-hmm. and I wish there was more that we knew what how to change it I think there are quite a few I don't know if there are MDs or, But there are a lot of people, certainly in Salt Lake, there are people who specialize in working with hormones. And if you even look at, often they'll be segregated, there, there are places that specialize in men's hormone treatment mm-hmm. and women's hormone treatment. You know, even though it's kind of an in, inexact and a new, very young science, mm-hmm. I think it's worth it to try to, you know, try things to see if it can be helpful because I think it's a hormonal problem, mostly.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I noticed it when I first got married. A few months before I got married, I started birth control because I'd never been sexually active before and we didn't want a baby right away so i started birth control a few months before well this was right around the time that i was going to be going back home and then insurance changed and the end result is i ended up switching birth control pills four times in six months
1: so you realize that's messing with your hormones that's all that's doing
0: oh yeah i didn't know it at the time no one (laughs) told me that no one told me that this was going to happen i felt like a crazy person and oh my goodness, Curtis deserves an award for sticking with me because I mean, I really was not a pleasant person to be around a lot of the times. And Curtis and I have talked really openly about this, you know, and I said, did you ask yourself, what have I gotten myself into? And he said, yeah, a little bit. But at the end of the day, I loved you and I made a commitment and I wasn't going anywhere. And I'm like, good for you. Thank you. I love you. You're amazing.
1: And I've had my own experience with doctors when they give you medication, they often don't tell you, oh, this could possibly happen. Or even uh-huh. to say, because it only take like two minutes to say, well, this is what's going on. Because four different, oh my gosh, four different birth control pills in six months, your hormones are probably don't know what's going on. And oh, so, it, yeah. but, but see, that's my point. You, I mean, what you're saying is you felt like a crazy person. Oh, yeah. that is totally hormonal. Uh-huh. That's not going on in your brain. That's nothing to do with your neurotransmitters. That is hormonal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were talking about hormone therapies and how this is kind of this new science, are you referring uh, to uh, treatments of the endocrine system or is well, that is that part I, of it?
1: Yeah. And I don't know okay. a lot about it. There are certainly places. I, I have clients who Try that out. And I think it's worth giving it a try because, okay. and there's a lot that we don't know. And I don't know how you make forward progress, you know, without trying things out and seeing mm-hmm. what works. Because I don't know that there's a lot of research money that goes into this yeah. aspect of our lives, but I think there should be because it mm-hmm. really affects it in a major way. The way we behave, I'll just make this one comment the way we behave is what drives our behavior is incredibly complex. Absolutely. And there's a great book by Robert Sapolsky called, I think it's just called Behave. It is an incredibly difficult book to read. I think he's a biologist. and mm-hmm. But he talks about all the different levels of what's going on in our body that determines how we behave. Mm-hmm. And I think we like to think, oh, it's all up here in our brain and, and I have total control over it. And he would say that's not true. Mm-hmm. that were driven a lot by hormones, by, you know, experience. I mean, it's, it's an interesting book, hard to read. Yeah. but
0: Yeah, one of the things that you hear in uh, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is choose to be happy. And when people say that, I thought, but what if someone walks up to you and punches you in the face? Are you just supposed to smile about it? No,
1: you're not. Well, I have my own interpretation of that. See, I think that it... There's a disservice, too, in saying that because mm-hmm. it neglects those brain issues that we've just right. been talking about, right, Right, that there are actually people who can't get out of bed and who don't want to function. And so if you say to them, well, you aren't choosing to be happy, that is really disrespectful. It It's not helpful at all.
0: Right. And so it, how I've had it explained to me since then or how I've kind of come to terms with it is choose to be happier. So choose okay. <laughs> choose to look at the context of things in a different way. And how I've come to terms with that is it is totally natural for us to feel human emotions. It's natural for yes. us to feel upset. Someone says something and they are genuinely trying to upset us. It's okay for us to feel upset, but it's what you do and it's how you handle it that counts.
1: So I'm going to go back to you know a couple of weeks ago when we read uh, your friend's story. Mm-hmm. you know, about his depression, his uh, suicidal ideation. And one of the things that, I mean, I say this to clients all the time. One of the things that keeps him going is a gratitude, a practice of gratitude. Yes. And so here's how I think about choose to be happy is in my mind, the brain has evolved to be more focused on the negative or more easily focused on the negative because that's how we've survived. Mm-hmm. But I think that what happens, say, with gratitude is you're shifting your gaze back and you're focusing more on the things that say are happy or the things because they're kind of synonymous. The things that we're grateful for typically are the things that make us happy. And so, you know, choose to be happy in my mind is choose to have a practice of gratitude daily because you're just training your brain To focus more on the positive rather than the negative and Mm -hmm. your friend, you know, it's one of the things that keeps him going and I really believe in it. And there is a lot of really good research that supports that.
0: Absolutely. And I won't pretend that for some people it's not incredibly hard and there are certainly going to be instances where it is more difficult to find things to be grateful for. If you have just gone through the death of a loved one, It's not going to be easy to find something to be grateful for. But in the end, eventually emotions change. Nothing is forever. And it can be hard to see that. And when you're in it, it doesn't feel that way. But you just got to keep going. Sometimes it is a huge win just to put one foot in front of the other. If that's that's all you can do, you're winning.
1: Yeah. And that's what I say to people when they're in the middle of that grief or that, you know, that intense feeling of sadness, it really feels like it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. And so if you can help them see, you know what, in six months, it's not going to feel this way. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think that you, Liz, I'm going to give you a, a task. You should okay. change. Your, your task is to change, choose to be happy. Mm hmm within your uh, church to choose to be grateful. Yeah. And and I think you're going to achieve the same thing but to me it makes more sense.
0: Yeah, choose I
1: be, choose to be grateful.
0: Yeah, choose to be grateful.
1: One of our future episodes maybe we should talk more in depth about emotions. That would be a good one. That um be. because whether you believe in evolution or whether you believe in a deity Let's say you, you know you're a creationist and you be, believe God created us. Well, He created us with these emotions for a reason. What's Absolutely. the reason? What's the reason? Mm-hmm. And that's what I try and help people understand. There's a reason we have these. Yeah. And they give us information, they give us really mm-hmm. good information. And so all emotions are valid. Yes. It's what you do with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the
1: behavior that goes along with them.
0: And if you don't feel, Intense pain, how do you know when you're feeling happy? You right. have to know the good and the bad. You have to experience both
1: right, and that's one of the problems for some people on those antidepressants mm-hmm. is they're just flat, and yeah. we typically don't like that. That mm-hmm. just doesn't feel that good to us.
0: Mm-hmm. So. yeah, okay, so. Next week, we are going to change gears. So we are going to have an episode on body-focused repetitive behaviors. So things like trichotillomania, which is pulling out your hair, picking at your skin or scratching or those kinds of things. So we're going to have on a, another guest. Her name is Luisa Zetnig, and she is the co-founder of a company called Nudge that focuses on helping people to overcome body-focused repetitive behaviors. So it's going to be a great episode. We're excited for that, and we will see you all next week. Have a good week. Have a question for Dr. Burton? How about a topic you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at mentalhealthpod21 at gmail.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Liz Lang. Music is by Audio Lounge.